0: I'm making my way through the Gospels right now. And so we had uh, Jesus betrayed by Judas Iscariot in Gethsemane today. And so I was reading through that and making some notes. There was an interesting thing that I thought of as I was reading this morning. Uh, Did you know that the only person who mentions the name of the guy who cut off the high priest's servant's ear? Who was that? Do you know? Peter was the guy who did it. John is the only one who mentions it. Now, why do you think that John might be the only one who mentions Peter's name? Any thoughts? Any ideas? Maybe he's the only one who saw it? Certainly possible. Well, I read a book a couple of years ago called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by a man named Richard Bauckham. And he suggests that because John's gospel was written last, it was the last one written in terms of the chronology, that it's possible that John told that story after Peter had already died. And so he includes the name because now Peter has nothing to fear for being arrested or charged with this violent incident. Uh, So... The other Gospel writers were protecting Peter because he was still alive at the time that they wrote their Gospels. But by the time John wrote his Gospel, Peter was dead. And so he included Peter's name. Now again, it involves some speculation. But um, I thought that was a a plausible reason for why that might be included. Because if anyone, you might expect Mark to include that detail because most of us believe that Peter was the primary source behind Mark's gospel. So I always thought, oh, it's probably Mark that mentions it, but it's actually not. It's John. So anyway, well, read your Bibles and uh, these little things will come to mind and you can think and write notes. If you want somebody to read it with, uh, we've got a number of us who are reading it on the YouVersion app. A number of you in this classroom and then some from the other class have joined up on there and. We're friends, and I see what you're reading, and you see what I'm reading, and we can keep each other accountable and encouraged, so I encourage you to do that. Well, hey, this week we are on First and Second Samuel, the theme of which is longing for a righteous king. The uh, attendance book is making its way around, so if you would please sign that, we'll get it to the ladies in the office on Monday. Okay, where do we begin? On Saturday, October 9th, the top-ranked football team in America, the Alabama Crimson Tide, faced off against the unranked Texas A&M Aggies. Alabama had won 100 games in a row against unranked opponents. Texas A&M coach Jimbo Fisher had never defeated a top ranked team. His record was 0-6 against number one ranked teams and his name is Jimbo. After Texas A&M jumped out to an early lead, Alabama roared back, scoring 21 straight points to go up 38 to 31 with five minutes left to go. Two minutes later, Texas A&M answered back with a 25-yard touchdown pass, which tied the game at 38 all. In the end, the game was decided by one of the smallest players on the field, senior place kicker Seth Small. From Katy, Texas. When it mattered most, small came up big, hitting a 28-yard game-winning field goal as time expired. The next day, sports writers called this a blank versus blank matchup. David versus Goliath, right? Good. The story of David and Goliath is such a well-known iconic story that it's part of our common vernacular from sports to politics and everything in between. But do you know the rest of the story? As Paul Harvey used to say. Do you know what led up to that famous showdown between David and Goliath? Do you know what happened to david after he killed the giant goliath armed only with a sling and five smooth stones do you know what happened to the king who watched this confrontation from the comfort of his tent do you remember his name king saul well this morning we're going to look at the books of first and second samuel now the question you might be wondering is why would we look at both of these books together Well, originally, in the Hebrew text, this was one book. It became two books when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. Who knows what the name of that is? The Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint. Do you know why it was called the Septuagint? uh, uh, Seventy translators... Seventy days. We're not 100% sure of the veracity of that story, but that was the story. And so um, 70 men made that translation, 70 days. And so Septuagint, which sept meaning 70, as in septuagenarian, that's sept, 70. So there you go. Now, while I'm not suggesting that we make it one book again, we're going to look at the two books together just for the sake of simplicity and themes. Okay, together we will see that the books of Samuel are much more than the story of David and Goliath. And hopefully while still appreciating the Veggie Tales version, we'll see that this is much more than Dave and the Giant Pickle, a lesson in self-esteem. Samuel is about a God who loved his people so much that in spite of their sin and rebellion, he sent them an anointed king Samuel is about a god who doesn't see the way see things the way that men and women see them while men and women human beings look at the outward appearance god looks at the heart Samuel is about a covenant promise the promise of a son of David whose kingdom would know no bitterness strife and bloodshed All these things which we read so much about in the books of Samuel. So, where do we begin? Before we get to the text itself, we'll look briefly at the questions of authorship and structure. All right, authorship. Like the other historical books that we've looked at so far, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel was written by an anonymous author. Now, you might be wondering, wait a minute. Isn't the book called Samuel? Wouldn't Samuel be the author? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So why wouldn't Samuel be written by Samuel? Good question. While we may be tempted to jump to that conclusion, the text itself eliminates Samuel from the running. Samuel's birth is recorded in 1 Samuel 1, and his death in 1 Samuel 25. So while it is possible that Samuel could have written the story of his own birth, that's certainly possible, it is impossible for him to have written about book, events that occurred after his death. The entirety of 2 Samuel, for example, happens after he's already dead. So he's out of the running. Further, these two books record many events after the death of Samuel, we talked about that. All right, structure. Samuel tells the story of three individuals. So, first and second Samuel, we have three individuals. We have the story of Samuel, who was essentially Israel's last judge. We have the story of Saul, who was Israel's first king. And then we have the story of David, Israel's second king. ...and the founder of Israel's most important dynasty. Okay, that's the the story. Samuel is a book about the transition from theocracy to monarchy. In the past, God had been the king and he raised up human agents... ...Moses, Joshua, the judges, Samuel... ...but now leadership would be institutionalized and hereditary... As we'll see, this is not necessarily a positive development. Okay? Literary analysis. What happens in the book? The first thing to notice is that while Samuel is mostly made up of prose, that is straightforward narrative storytelling, the books are framed with two sections of poetry. First, Samuel begins with Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. And it closes with David's song of deliverance. 2 Samuel 21 through 23, verse 7. So we have a prose story, straightforward historical storytelling, framed by two sections of poetry. Both poems rejoice in deliverance from enemies. Both poems celebrate God as a rock both speak of Sheol, which is the place of death. And then both describe God's thundering in the darkness. And finally, his protection of the faithful and his steadfast love for the Lord's anointed. So again, all of those themes take place in both of those poems. Now, this is probably beyond the scope of this class in this book. But who can tell me what Sheol is? Do you know what Sheol is? In the Old Testament. What's that? The place, the place of waiting after death. Now, I point that out only because sometimes we assume that Sheol is the same as hell. You know, we get, well, Sheol, Hades, hell. It's actually not the same. And if you read some of the Psalms, for example, you'll be confused if you think that David is talking about hell when he says that you are with me in Sheol. Sheol is merely the place of death. Uh, Everyone in biblical uh, thinking goes to Sheol when they die. Some go to heaven and some go to hell, but everybody goes to Sheol. That was confusing to me uh, probably growing up. I always sort of assumed that Sheol was the same as hell. But it's not. It's different. It's the place of death. It's the place where you're sort of waiting for the resurrection. Okay. Now both poems highlight one of the unifying themes of the book. The sanctity and protection of the Lord's anointed. Somebody read 1 Samuel 24 verse 6. Now, do you remember this, the scene, what was happening in there? This is the scene where uh, David and his men go into a cave. Saul, who's been trying to kill David, kind of wanders into the cave. And they're saying, you got to kill this guy. He's, God has given him into our hands. And uh, he says, I can't do it. He's the Lord's anointed. God chose him to be king of Israel. In other words, if God's going to remove him, God's going to have to remove him. I will not do it. He, even, he just cuts off a little piece of his robe. And even then, he's racked with guilt and says, I've sinned. I should not have done this. So, protection and sanctity of the Lord's anointed. Somebody read another one. 2 Samuel 1, verses 14 through 16. Right? So that's a big theme in the book. Again, bracketing the story in those two sections of poetry is this theme that the Lord's anointed is very significant. Anointed essentially means set apart uh, or holy. Uh, when In the Old Testament, when leaders were chosen or judges or prophets, they were anointed. Uh, oil was placed on them and they were set apart for a unique calling in God's kingdom. So that's what anointed means. David was the Lord's anointed, literally anointed by Samuel to be the next king, God's chosen king, long before he even actually took the throne. So that's, that's part of it, the anointed. So how does this theme, the sanctity and protection of the Lord's anointed, play out in the narrative center of the book? Let's look. Part one, we have the Samuel narrative. Now, before we dive right into the story, remember where we've been. We're now transitioning from the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You remember that theme from the book of Judges? No king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you remember the pattern of judges, the people would turn their backs on God God would punish them, usually at the hands of a foreign power. And then the people would cry out to God for a deliverer, a judge, a redeemer. And then God would save them. Now with that in mind, two themes from the period of Judges and Ruth converge in the opening chapter of 1 Samuel. The theme of barrenness and the theme of blindness. At this point in the story, the nation of Israel had become a spiritually barren place. The book of Judges ended with the people of Israel behaving exactly like the wicked men of Sodom and Gomorrah. The men of Benjamin threatened to rape a Levite, a male by the way, who cowardly gave them his daughter to rape and kill instead. The people of Israel were so horrified by these events, and I would add, rightfully so, ...that they attacked the tribe of Benjamin... ...leading to even more killing, more abuses of women... ...and even greater spiritual blindness. Remember also that in the book of Ruth... ...Naomi and her family had left Bethlehem... ...during a time of famine... ...and her two, her two sons died... ...leaving her barren. Naomi's two daughters-in-law were barren too... ...a situation that was resolved when god remembered ruth and gave her redeemer through boaz somebody read Bo- ruth 4:13 4, and 14 So those two themes of blindness and barrenness, blindness in the book of Judges, you remember who the last judge was? Samson. What, uh, what happened to old Samson right at the very end? Gouged his eyes out. He's blind. So Israel is getting more and more blind. The theme of barrenness, very present in the book of Ruth, uh, There. They have no children. They're trying to get a redeemer so that they might have children. So those are the two themes leading up into into 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 1, we meet another barren woman, a woman named Hannah. Does anyone know what Hannah means in Hebrew? Hannah. It means grace. So if you meet someone named Hannah, you can remember their name by remembering God's grace. Now, Hannah... God's grace her barrenness was very painful to her particularly because her husband had another wife a woman named Peninnah who seemed to be able to have as many children as she wanted to have God answered Hannah's prayer and overcame her physical barrenness by giving her a son named Samuel who knows what Samuel means in Hebrew anyone Yes, he hears, or particularly God hears. Uh, the great Shema, Shema Yisrael Adonai, Adonai Echad, means hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. Um, so that's Shema, it means hear. El, or El, means God, so God hears. Uh, his name is uh, Shamul El, God hears. So God answered Hannah's prayer and overcame her physical barrenness by giving her a son, Samuel, God hears. He helped Israel overcome their spiritual barrenness by serving as the unofficial last judge of Israel. Now, why would I say unofficial last judge? Who knows about Samuel's life and why he might be similar to the judges? Anyone? He's raised in the temple. Good. He was a a Nazarite. Good. What else about him? He sort of functions as a prophet, priest, and king in the story, does he not? He's a prophet in the sense he hears God's voice. He speaks to God's people. He's a priest making sacrifices for the people. He grew up in the temple, as Cindy mentioned. And he essentially rules over the people as a king before Saul takes the throne. So in many ways, he is another judge in the long line of judges. But now there's a pivot because previously we talked about the downward spiral of the judges where each uh, judge gets sort of worse and worse and worse. We start with Othniel, who's this great judge. And then by the time we're done, we get to Samson, who's sleeping with prostitutes and he's murdering people. So now we have sort of a pivot And God once again provides the people with a righteous judge, even though the Bible doesn't specifically call him a judge. He is, I believe, the last unofficial judge of Israel. Now, during the time of the judges, blindness is also a theme. Remember that the people constantly did evil in the sight of the Lord by doing what was right in their own eyes. We talked about this. You might remember that Samuel... Uh, Samson, excuse me, was the last judge. Uh, he acquired everything that he set his eyes on. And in the end, the Philistines put out his eyes, making him blind. Here in 1 Samuel 1, we meet Eli, who is the blind priest of Israel. In spite of observing Hannah's mouth, 1 Samuel 1:12. Eli failed to understand what Hannah was saying. Do you remember that scene? She's praying. She's saying things kind of quietly to herself. uh, Eli can't see. When Hannah brought Samuel to Eli Eli, three years after his birth, Eli didn't recognize her. Do you remember that part of the story? She uh, comes back three years later. She has a son. And Eli, the priest, who should be the the man who sees God and sees things clearly, says, Who are you again? Uh, After they had this big monumental scene together. Eli's sons were sinning right under his nose. Eli didn't recognize it. When God called Samuel, the text notes this. Somebody read 1 Samuel 3, 1 and 2. Do you think that's important? Important details? By the time of Eli's death, we read... Somebody read 4 verse
1: 15. so
0: So, like Samson, he dies as a blind person. Do you think it's significant that the people who are supposed to be leading Israel at this time... ...are blind, literally blind, physically blind. And also, I would say, as I mentioned earlier, spiritually blind. He didn't realize that his sons were sinning right under his nose. He was completely oblivious. Here's the point. Israel was spiritually blind, so God delivered them by sending Samuel... ...the one person in the story who could see clearly. Israel was also spiritually barren... So God sent a son, a son who was to be born to a barren woman so that he could be the last judge, a man who fulfilled the roles of prophet, priest, and king in Israel. All right, now we move on to the Saul narrative. So any questions about the Samuel narrative? Okay, let's move to the the Saul narrative. Though Samuel was a faithful prophet, priest, and king, Samuel's sons were not faithful men. According to 1 Samuel 8, verse 3, they took bribes and perverted justice. Unhappy with the prospect of being led by Samuel's sons, who were very corrupt, the elders of Israel then gathered together and demanded a king to judge us like all the nations. God saw this request for what it really was. Somebody read 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 and 8.
1: And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you.
0: So the people... We're not just rejecting Samuel's sons, which might be understandable. God saw that their heart motive was they were rejecting God as their king. Uh, Like many of us today, we want to be like the nations. We want to be like other people around us. And so rather than being transformed by the image of Christ and into the image of Christ, we are conformed to the patterns of this world. That's part of what it means to be a sinful person. We all do that. And that's what was happening in Israel. So it looks like they need a king. It looks like they need a redeemer. Who, who did the people choose to be their leader? Well, they chose Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. He was athletic. They chose the book by its cover. Is that a good idea? Should we choose the book by the cover? Now, some of you who are more around in that time recognize the picture there. You remember what that picture was? Yeah, the famous, famous or rather maybe infamous Nixon-Kennedy debate. Now, forgetting what you think about Nixon or Kennedy, uh, there was sort of a widely held story that the people who listened to the debate on the radio thought, oh, Nixon won. But people who watched it on TV thought Kennedy dominated because... I think Nixon came in. He was recovering from the flu, and he was, he was already kind of a sweaty guy anyway and not the best-looking guy. No offense, Nixon, wherever you are. Uh, but so they saw him, and he's sweating, and he kind of looked annoyed, and he didn't want to be there. And Kennedy was sharp and cool and calm and collected, and so they chose the book by the cover. doesn't always work out if you ask Israel. Now, initially, Saul had some military success, But he repeatedly made rash decisions, including making an unlawful sacrifice to the Lord. Because of his disobedience, Samuel declared to him, somebody read 13 verse 14. In the end Saul was done in not by his outward actions alone but by his heart. At one point Saul tried to explain away his sin saying somebody read 16 or 15 verse 21 Though the, uh, so Saul remained on the throne, his kingship was effectively over because he disobeyed the voice of God. In 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed to be the king. So that's the end of the Saul narrative. Kind of a, a rough, rough time for the first king of Israel. Okay, David narrative. David is introduced in 1 Samuel 16. God sent Samuel to Jesse, his dad, and said that one of his sons should be anointed king. Samuel and Jesse were convinced that the oldest of Jesse's sons should be the king, or perhaps the next oldest, or maybe the next, or the next, and the next, and they went right down the line. And in the end, God chose Jesse's youngest son, David. Why is that significant? Why is it significant... That God did not choose the firstborn son, or the second, or the third, or the fourth, or right down the line. Yeah, it's going with that very theme that God does not look at outward appearances, but that the Lord judges the heart. Why else might it be significant? Good. Over and over. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Abraham two, had two sons. What were their names? Ishmael, the firstborn with the, uh, with the servant girl. And then the second was Isaac. And if you read the book of Galatians, you will see that God chose Isaac and rejected Ishmael. The younger was chosen. We see this throughout the, book, the the scriptures. Now, I bring that up and point that out because, A, it highlights God's sovereignty. We sometimes talk about the doctrine of election, which simply means that God chooses. Now, why does he choose? Why, did, why was David chosen? Well, was it something particularly about David? Maybe. May, you know, we might be tempted to believe that, except as we read the story, we see a lot of David's sins and failings. We'll talk about this. But... We see throughout scriptures, God chooses his people to be his chosen people. Remember, Israel was God's chosen people, not because they are greater than anyone else or smarter or more spiritually minded than anyone else. He simply chooses his people by his grace. It's a mystery, but he's God. And as uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, who are we as the clay to tell the potter, What he should or shouldn't have done, he's God. And so there are some mysteries in here to God's providence and election, all these things. And I don't think God intends us to fully unwrap or unpack all of these things. We simply, at the end of the day, have to submit to God and say, thank God for his grace, thank God for his mercy. Thank God that often the younger is the chosen person. Because we, especially as Gentile people, would be completely out of the kingdom of God, had not God chosen the weak and the despised and the outsiders to be part of his insider people. Okay? Well, let's keep going. David was a shepherd, but he was also a musician. David became a servant in the royal court of Saul, and eventually he became his armor bearer. In 1 Samuel 17, we have the famous story of David and Goliath. In the story, David, the man of faith, triumphed over a giant named Goliath... ...armed with a simple sling and five smooth stones. So, what is the message of that famous story? Is it, be like David and you can defeat the giants or Goliaths of your life? Is it, uh, pick up five smooth stones of hard work determination... (laughs) Bravery, loyalty, and family? Is it every giant has his day? Is it none of the above? Is it all of the above? What do you think? None? 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 They are, the they Bigger they are, the harder <laughs> they fall. Sometimes true, sometimes not. Well, I think that those of you who said none of the above, have a very good point it is about god's faithfulness and yet on the other hand uh, we have to remember that the book of hebrews holds up these men and women of faith from the old testament as examples to us we will never be made right with god by conforming to the examples of these old testament people but once we are made right with god through jesus the true hero the true king the true redeemer Once we have been brought into the family of God through Jesus Christ, then these ancient people of faith do serve as an example to us. That we can say his bravery was very laudable. The fact that he trusted in the Lord is very important. We can look to him as an example of what it means to be a a person who follows after and trusts after God. But again, the order is important. Because if the message is simply, be like David, you can do what he did. Well, maybe, maybe not. But even if you could do exactly what David did, you would still be separated from God by your sin. All of us would be. And yet, if God defeats the greatest enemy, sin, death, hell, through Jesus, the true son of David, the ultimate redeemer, then these people don't condemn us. For their faith and their faithfulness, they inspire us. That we might live like David, having been redeemed by David's God. Okay? All right, let's keep going. The message is, trust David's God. God is our deliverer. God gave David the victory. We can't be like David unless God's anointed fights and wins our battles for us. Now, we said this already, but who is God's anointed? The Hebrew word for God's anointed is Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. We need Christ, our Redeemer, to defeat not only the enemy Goliath, but the ultimate enemies of sin and death, which Paul says he has defeated and will ultimately defeat when he comes again. All right, after his victory over Goliath, David became a very popular person in the kingdom. He became so popular, the people wrote a little song about him. Somebody read 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. Uh Uh-oh. Does that sound like a song that you want to hear? And at first, I bet David heard that and he said, yeah, I like that. But then he realized... Uh-oh, this is not bad. This is not not a good thing. The song enraged Saul more than a Justin Bieber song on your daughter's Spotify playlist. It will enrage you. And from that point on, Saul tried to kill David. Jonathan, Saul's son, warned David about the plots against his life since the two of them had become best friends. David fled from Saul and Saul Pursued him. Now, even during this pursuit, however, David refused to kill Saul when given the chance. The most famous example of David's refusal to lay a hand on God's anointed, we talked about this, occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 24 when Saul went into a cave in Engedi to use the little king's room. David's men said, God is giving it into our hand. Kill the king. But David cut off a piece of his robe, regretted even that, and said, <coughs> 24 verse 6. Now do you hear a word repeated several times in that verse? The Lord's anointed. Very important. Uh, Hebrew text uses repetition as a way to underline something. So whenever you read a verse or a couple of verses and you see the same word over and over and over again, it's significant. The narrator, inspired by the Spirit, wants us to see that this is very important. So Saul was placed uh, placated temporarily, but eventually he went back to his old bloodthirsty ways. He was so desperate to kill David that he hired a medium from Endor to help him. Now, note that Endor is not the same as Endor, which is where the Ewoks lived. Uh, they put a little hyphen in there so we wouldn't confuse it. A little Star Wars humor for you this morning. Yes, there you go. There you go. Now eventually Saul died in a battle with the Philistines. When the battle got hot and heavy, Saul commanded his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer refused and then Saul took his own life by falling on his sword. The Philistines cut off his head and paraded around to celebrate. Jonathan also died in the battle, but not by suicide. He was actually killed by the enemies. When David heard about the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, he was very sad. It's striking that David would have such sorrow over a man who had repeatedly tried to kill him. The only explanation for the sorrow that was in David's heart was that he himself was a man after God's own heart. He took God so seriously and loved God so deeply that he didn't see Saul's faults. He saw him as God's anointed king. With Saul dead, David initially became the king of Judah and finally the lone king over the united nation of Israel. Note that that David reigned over Judah for seven years and over both Israel and Judah for 40 years. Do you think those numbers are significant? Why or why not? What is significant about the fact that he ruled over Judah for seven years ...and the combined kingdom for 40 years. What are are some significance of those numbers? Seven is the number number that signifies completion. What are some famous sevens in the Bible? Days of creation. God created the whole world six days, rested on the seventh day... ...having completed all his work, we're told, in Genesis... He forgives us 70 times 7, which again sort of is the completion exponentially. You know, sort of 70 times 7. What about the number 40? What are some significant numbers of 40? 40 years in the wilderness, in the the desert? 40 days days Jesus was tempted. What else? 40 40 days of rain during the flood. Ken, do you have another one? It's about the length of a generation. Good. So these numbers are not every number in the Bible is significant. And you can go a little bit crazy, you know, with trying to find obscure numbers and numerology. But oftentimes the scriptures will give us numbers which are significant. So in order to paint a picture, in this case, the picture that David's reign over Israel was the perfect reign Now, again, we'll see the cracks in the armor there as David sins. But he is set up as the paradigm king. All other kings are held to the standard of King David. That will be important later as we learn about the king who would come... ...who would be the son of David. Okay? But hold that thought. After Saul died and David assumed his rightful place as king of Israel he decided to build a temple, a permanent house for the Lord. The Lord reversed things, however, and made a covenant with David. The Lord promised that he would give David a house and a son who would be king forever. Do you see? So David says, Lord, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord says, not so fast. I'm going to build you a house. And when he says House, he doesn't just mean, you know, four walls and a sunroom and a pool in the back. He means a household, a generation. Somebody read 2 Samuel 7 verses 13 through 16. Good. Now, as is common in biblical prophecy, there's immediate fulfillment and then there's consummate or ultimate fulfillment. On one level, this is fulfilled by David's son, Solomon. Solomon did build the temple. And when Solomon sinned, God did discipline him. But on another level, there is a son of David who would establish the throne of David forever forever. Solomon, as successful as he was, and he was a very wealthy, successful king, brought much peace to the nation of Israel, he didn't fulfill that part of the covenant promise. No human being could fulfill the promise of a king who would reign forever. Or, perhaps I should say, no mere human being could fulfill the promise of a king who would live forever. That's why the people of Israel were looking for the son of David, the anointed one or Messiah, who they believed would take the throne of David and give Israel everlasting peace and an everlasting kingdom. Somebody read Matthew 9:27. As
1: Jesus passed on from there two blind men followed him crying aloud, "Have mercy on us, son of David."
0: Son of David, loaded term. What are they talking about? They're talking about the one who would fulfill the covenant that God made with David. Son of David. They're saying he's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the one that we're waiting for. So I'm going to read Matthew 12, verse 23. Same same thing. Right? So they're saying, is this him? Did he arrive? Somebody read Matthew
1: 21
0: 9. Right? So Jesus makes his triumphal entry, and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They're expecting him to be the Messiah, the king who would fulfill God's promises uh, to David. I'll read the next one from Luke 1. We read, And the angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him ...the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob... ...how long? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In the New Testament, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment... ...of this covenant with David... ...which is not in itself a new covenant... ...but a further revealing of the substance of the covenant of grace... That God made it, that made its first appearance in the Garden of Eden. You know, we'll skip through this a little bit because we're running out of time. But who remembers the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Do you remember? What's that? Don't eat the fruit. They eat the fruit. Then what happens? Genesis 3:15. Yeah, there's a promise that uh, says to Eve, Hey, I'm going to give you a son. Uh, I'm going to put enmity, Satan, between you and the woman, right? Uh, her seed will crush your head and you, Satan, will bruise his heel. Now, this is the first promise of Jesus who did fulfill this. All right, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. We're running out of time. God promised Abraham a seed and said through that seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 3, 6, or Galatians 3.16 Paul explicitly identifies this seed with Christ. He says the seed is not plural, it's singular, it's one, it's Jesus. In the Davidic covenant, God promised that the promised seed would be the son of David who would reign forever as God's anointed king. Later in Psalm 110, we are told that the son of David would also be David's Lord. Who could it be? David's son, and yet David's Lord. Now, is this the happy ending that we are expecting? Not exactly. If I was writing the book, I might have ended it right there. That's a good place to end. But as we will see, the Bible is a very realistic book. In the wake of this great covenant promise, we read about David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. After the... Wicked need, after the wicked deeds, sorry, wicked deeds were done, we meet the crafty and courageous prophet Nathan, who told the story about a poor man's little lamb to trick David into condemning himself. David's reign was also marked by a bitter feud with his son Absalom. Absalom conspired against David. David ran away because he didn't want to fight and possibly kill his own son. And Absalom rewarded his father's love by putting a bed on the roof of the palace so that he could publicly sleep with all of his father's wives and concubines. Not good. Not good at all. Absalom was eventually killed. You remember the story? He got his hair caught in a branch. And Joab, the commander of David's army, who was a fairly murderous person in his own right, enjoyed killing a little bit too much, he ran a spear through him against David's wishes. David mourned his death loudly and publicly. David's last public act was a census which angered the Lord. Essentially, David was saying, look at how great I am, instead of giving God the glory for all the greatness of Israel. David eventually died, and his son Solomon became the new king of Israel. All right, some theological themes of these books. Oops, excuse me. As hinted earlier, one of the main theological themes in the book or books of Samuel is the theme of God's anointed. In Samuel, God's anointed is not the person who looks the part. God's anointed is a man after God's own heart because he loves God wholeheartedly. If God's anointed is a man who loves God with his whole heart, well, then how do we explain David? David. When we first meet David, he's a shepherd who clubs some wild animals to death for the sake of his sheep. By the end of the book, David has decided that his sheep, the people, should die for him. See, at the beginning, he says, I will die for my sheep. But then he says, these guys need to die for me. David was a man of war, killing many men in battle. He was also a murderer, killing Uriah the Hittite so that he could commit adultery with his wife Bathsheba. Well, the text hints and shouts that while David is God's anointed, there is another anointed one, a Messiah who will be both David's son and David's Lord. David announced, or Jesus announced that he was the good shepherd. The, the shepherd that David ultimately failed to be. We read that in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life. The The Messiah, the son of David, was promised an everlasting kingdom. You'll note that Jesus mentioned his kingdom over 115 times in the Gospels. uh, I'll read one of them, Matthew 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I, Jesus, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In 1 Samuel 2, Hannah sang a song where she longed for a child and a righteous king. In Luke 2, Mary Mary sang a song of praise, thanking and praising God for Jesus, Israel's savior king. If you read those two songs, the song of Hannah, the song of Mary, they're very similar. Uh, Many writers believe, and I agree with them, that Mary had that song in her mind when she sang her own song of praise, when the angel announced that Jesus would be born. Not provable, but there's enough thematic connection that it seems plausible anyway. Just as David walked alone into battle with the great enemy of Israel, Goliath, so Jesus would walk alone into battle with the greatest enemy of humanity, Satan, the great serpent. In doing so, Jesus, our wounded Savior, would crush Satan's head and reign over a kingdom that would last forever. All right, conclusion, as we get to the end of our time. Samuel is about the yearnings for a righteous king, God's anointed one. Today, we no longer uh, have to anticipate the son of David's arrival. He's here, Jesus, God's anointed one the Messiah. He has defeated sin and death forever in order to usher in the kingdom of God, a kingdom which was inaugurated when he came and will be consummated when he comes again. Okay, that's the story of First and 2 Samuel. We're almost out of time. We kind of are out of time. Any questions? Any thoughts? We, we have time for like maybe one or two. Anybody? Anybody? Yes, Elizabeth. I, I've always wondered, maybe this is explained. Why did they anoint David before it was time for him to be king? Well, oh, that's a good question. Why did they? Why did Samuel anoint him? And then there's kind of a, a gap between which there, a <laughs> which did cause a lot of problems. That is true. Um, it's a good question. I think we can only only speculate why that might be the case. Uh, any anyone any thoughts any ideas? Dave, what do you think? I
1: think maybe that the Christ would suffer. That's the great mystery: is that the Christ would come to suffer, and that David was a Christ, and so he was also unrecognized as king for a long part. Sort of recognized as the type of Jesus' earthly ministry.
0: Did everyone everyone hear that? Um, that was a better answer than I would have get given. Well done, Dave. Yeah, to highlight God's sovereignty, God's choice, that's certainly a possibility. Don? I think the
1: other thing is that, that in order of uh tradition of the, of the day, Saul's sons would be king. Mm-hmm. And and David was anointed by Saul by uh Samuel to show that God had chosen the
0: next king and, and sort of thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Otherwise you could maybe rationalize that somehow well, the Israelite people were unhappy with Saul, so they kind of made the change. But it does highlight God's sovereignty. No, no, God picks the king, and He picks him long before He even takes the throne. Uh, we are, remember, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and so God reveals His uh, providence and His electing grace, sovereign grace, uh, before this even takes place. And God chooses and equips. Mm hmm. Yep, God chooses and God equips. Good point. Don, last thought.
1: I couldn't hear everything everybody said. Somebody may have have said something, but uh, it seems to me David was a young man. He Mm -hmm. had a big task ahead of him. Uh, By by him being anointed early on, I gave him great faith. Look at the perspective he had on God's anointing. He was God's Mm -hmm. anointing.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I'm sure there are many other things that could be said. I went a little bit long today. I'm sorry. I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll quit. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the anointed king. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you reign forever and ever. That even though we are as sinful, uh, more sinful than David was, we, ha- we are as blind sometimes as Eli was. Yet you forgive our sins. You restore our sight. So that we can see the wonders of your grace. Lord, I pray for everyone who's gathered here and everyone who will gather to worship you in the sanctuary today as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we eat the bread and drink the cup. Lord, may we we always remember that we are nourished by your body and blood, that we are nourished by the gospel. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks, thanks, Kip.